Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic q and I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. A recent Mayo Clinic study published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings found that patients who have COVID-19 who received care at Mayo Clinic had lower mortality rates than the national average. The study took a retrospective or backward look at patients who were treated for COVID-19 at Mayo Clinic between March 1st and July 31st of this year. Well, here with us to help us understand the results of this study and share uh, more COVID-19 information is Dr. Jack Ahoro, who's an infectious disease expert at Mayo Clinic and also the lead author of this study. Welcome, Dr. Ahoro. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. To start things off, could you tell us how many patients were included in this study and were they only Mayo Clinic patients? So this was a study of only Mayo Clinic patients. It included 7,891 patients in total with 897 requiring a hospitalization and 354 of those requiring ICU cares between uh, March and the end of July of this year. How did you compare them to um, national numbers? So we looked at what had been reported nationally in other publications and large scale studies that were reporting on outcomes such as mortality and hospitalization rates and tried to compare what we could observe in our patient population to what was being reported by other large studies. Well, what did you find out? So our overall mortality was quite low at around 1.1%, which is lower than what's been seen across the country with about a 3% overall mortality reported across the country at the time that the study was completed. And our hospitalization rate was uh, our, our rate of mortality among hospitalized patients was about 7.1% comparing to anywhere between 13 and 25% nationwide. Our ICU mortality in particular was quite impressive at 11.9% where the national averages have been up to uh, one third of patients who go into the ICU during those first few months uh, dying of COVID-19. Wow, that sounds so high, up to 25% of patients dying, and we know that those numbers keep climbing, so uh, it's still a, a major concern. Yes, definitely, and even though mortality numbers are uh, increasing every day, the rate of mortality has dropped since the summer peak when this was being um, initially analyzed. Uh, as part of it is how nationally we've gained a better idea of how to treat COVID-19 and systems have improved for this uh, nationwide. But even so, the Mayo rates were quite striking. Jack, were you surprised by any of the findings in the study? Yes, I was surprised by the low rates overall. I was expecting us to do a little bit better than the national average because we did have some features in our favor, specifically not having peaks testing our capabilities to the same extent as some of the major cities like New York were during the same time period, having more time to prepare and put systems in place and the extensive investment the institution put into readiness for this. But even with all that, the, uh, this was quite a striking impact, especially as some of our sites did see peaks during this time period. So what is different at Mayo Clinic? What factors do you think contributed to Mayo Clinic's positive outcomes in the study? Sure, well, first off, we had access to a number of treatments and the latest treatments here. A uh, number of studies were ongoing and we also had the advantage of having a team-based approach here, the Mayo Clinic model of care overall. And with COVID in particular, we had a research trials team that was actually reviewing patients on a daily basis and going beyond just identifying patients who were candidates for research, but providing some of the 
feedback to our frontline clinicians about what the latest uh, findings indicate would be the best standard of care. So having this multidisciplinary group of physicians who were staying up to date in the evolving world of COVID, uh, providing this feedback to the frontline providers had a drastic impact on our overall um, outcomes. Finally, we had a lot of collaborations beyond just that uh, research team collaboration where we had collaboratives with our lab to include to make sure we had adequate testing capabilities and processes in place and extensive work with the outpatient practice. In recent months, we've been hospitalizing fewer of our patients because we've been more able to do monitoring at home and do remote monitoring type programs. And some of that had to do with being able to translate processes of care from the hospital setting to the home setting so that the hospitals wouldn't be overwhelmed and, well, keep people out of the hospital who really don't need it now that we have these tools. Jack, it has positively stunned me in this past, I guess, nine months uh, since I've been noticing since March, how much research and how much we have learned about this virus and how to manage it. Uh, since the beginning of it. And I imagine that that bit of hindsight that we perhaps had our surge a little later than some other uh, regions did probably played into that somewhat. Definitely. This was a field that has been and continues to change really on a daily basis. And having the advantage of others' experience was critical to us having better outcomes with this. And then having that team-based approach so that we had individuals who were really keeping up with that cutting edge so we could apply it as it was being found out was another factor really in our favor. We have actually had quite a surge in some of our regions in the last months since you um, uh, stopped collecting numbers for your study or since you cut it off in July for this particular uh, portion of it. Um, will you be including those patients in a future study or will you expand this study to include more patients to look longer term? Absolutely. This is something that definitely is going to need some follow-up. And we've been following up with a number of different treatments and tools that have been put in place. And at some point in the near future, we will have to look at what the uh, impact has been during this peak. Uh, during the same time, Mayo has been participating in a number of multi-center trials for different treatments. And the results of those interventions that include Mayo cohorts will uh, be reported separately in those findings. Uh, we are looking, excited to look at some different epidemiology studies and treatment um, studies that we weren't able to in this first cohort because this uh, peak has been much larger. So we'll have many more uh, subjects that we can evaluate to see if there were specific differences with different parts of the protocol put in place and hopefully feedback to society at large, some of our research findings, the way that we've been able to benefit from uh, the findings of other institutions and uh, communities. So Jack, uh, I'm asking you to predict now, but I'm um, talking about looking at other uh, epidemiological factors, et cetera. What are some of those things that you might look at and what are you expecting to see? So one of the things that we would like to look at is some of our specific ICU interventions. We have had a excellent ICU staff here providing high quality supportive care, which is really the most important part of COVID treatment for the critically ill. But there are still a number of debates about some areas of supportive care in terms of what is the best way to say uh, provide ventilation modes, what are some of the different ways that you can help with sedation or synchronizing patients with a ventilator. And our ICU staff are very interested in looking into that. 
in the first cohort here with only 354 patients, it was difficult to prize out if any of those had any significant difference. But as the second surge has given us more cases, we'll be very interested in looking at can we look at some of these subsets in a little more detail to identify which practices that are uh, currently varied across different Mayo sites and even between providers might be leading to better outcomes. And I imagine that that information is useful, not only just for managing COVID-19, but perhaps even as we go into the future, if there are other uh, viruses that are similar or other situations that arrive, we've probably learned a lot about management of uh, large numbers of the population. Absolutely. And I suspect that we're going to be able to apply some of the lessons we're learning here into the broader uh, ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome population because there's really never been as concerted an effort at studying a large number of patients with this kind of lung injury before. This has always been of interest to critical illness studies in the past, but this year has given a very um, big bolus to that kind of research. And although there are certainly ways in which COVID is different than other cases of ARDS, there's a lot of similarities that are going to give us some research uh, opportunities for the near future. That's a very interesting um, thought that you may be able to apply this to patients who have other problems, lung disorders, for instance, that might get them admitted to the intensive care unit. Um, so it's even more globally applicable, probably. Yes, uh, I am an intensivist and work sometimes in our health system ICUs with these patients and really working in the ICU with these patients, aside from all of the PPE and some of these treatments, the key part of treatment still comes down to how do you manage the ventilator and how do you avoid injuring the lung further than COVID-19, which is true of any patient with ARDS. And just for uh, the interest of our readers, when you talk, our, our listeners rather, when you talk about a ventilator, you're talking about a machine that helps to breathe for the patient when they're uh, yes. very ill. Yeah, and specifically in this case, I'm thinking of invasive ventilators where we use a breathing tube to help, um, help a patient with their breathing though non-invasive and high flow oxygen delivery techniques that don't involve invasive ventilation have also seen a lot more use during this epidemic. Jack, you mentioned earlier that there are uh, many research uh, studies that have been both evaluated by um, our experts here at Mayo Clinic, but also some that we are participating in. Would you be able to describe for our listeners some of the other uh, research endeavors that are going on, either just within Mayo Clinic or in conjunction with other um, clinics? Certainly. We have a very large COVID uh, research task force headed by uh, Dr. Andrew Badley that's been looking into uh, more than a dozen different work streams and areas within COVID research and coordinating these efforts. But some of the ones that are on the, uh, in the immediate future are looking at some of the treatments uh, with monoclonal antibodies like the drugs that have been in the media recently for outpatient treatment of COVID-19 as well as immune modulators and strategies for anticoagulation. Um, the monoclonal antibodies are part of an increased focus on treating illness earlier. Back when we did this study, almost all of the research was focusing on critical illness and what to do with patients who are really far advanced in disease. And we know with infections in general, when you wait that long, your number of treatment options are going to be limited. But that was just where we had to focus because that's where most of the <clears throat> most of the research could be focused at that time. Now that there's better understanding of how to treat the critically ill, there's more and more interest to trying to push back to what can we do in the non-ICU hospital patient and even what can we do in the outpatient. 
And we're looking at things like what sort of risk factors exist for outpatients so we can identify those at highest risk and in need of interventions and what kind of treatments can be used to make it so they have a lower risk of even coming into the hospital. Anticoagulation is also an area of some active research because a lot of the complications of COVID-19, contrary to a lot of other respiratory viruses, tend to be clotting-related disorders where we see things like more pulmonary emboli and uh, even more stroke. And looking at strategies to prevent that is an uh, area of very active research. So Finally, for our but, listeners, when you talk about anticoagulation, you're talking about blood thinners that can dissolve clots or help prevent them? Yes, yeah, sorry, talking about blood thinners to try to really prevent clots in this case more than even treat them. And what our strategy is for identifying those patients who are likely early in developing a clot and how we can intervene earlier in a safe way. And then also looking at just protective factors that individuals may have. There's been a lot of interest of looking at uh, risk factors to say who's going to get the sickest. But using some of the advanced analytical tools and epidemiologic research, it's interesting to try to look at what might be mitigating factors that may help uh, reduce somebody's chance of having severe COVID-19 and what sort of research uh, that might be leading us towards. Jack, there's so much in the news now about these new variants of COVID-19, such as uh, I, the UK has been particularly in the news in regards to this. And I'm wondering, what do you think about how this will change? Will this change our management of patients? Um, what do you think it will lend to the landscape? So, so far, these variants don't seem to change the management uh, too much from what we understand now. Now, these are all very new variants, and this is all subject to change on a daily to hourly basis, like most things related to COVID-19. But when we look at those variants, it seems to be that they're more transmissible as opposed to they require radically different treatments to uh, approach them. In fact, even uh, there was an early report that it might not even impact immunity. So the vaccines that are out there are looking more like they uh, may still be effective against these despite mutations that are occurring in the uh, UK and the uh, South African strains of COVID. Speaking of vaccines, Jack, uh, many of us are hoping that uh, these vaccines being distributed will uh, hamper your work a little bit by um, having there being fewer patients who um, are infected with COVID-19. And I know you obviously are hoping for that as well. Um, how will we know that um, we've done a good job with vaccines and that we can stop being so careful, stop um, masking, for instance? Yeah, vaccines are something that I've been very much so looking forward to. I just got mine last week and uh, it was not as bad an experience as uh, some uh, may lead you to believe. But having said that, it's uh, unknown at this point if this vaccine confers what we call sterilizing immunity, meaning that if you are vaccinated, does that mean you can't transmit the virus? We know from the studies that were done that those who have the vaccine are less likely to get a clinically significant infection or get infected themselves with COVID. But until we know for sure that that also means that you can't carry that, we're still looking at several months of needing some of the same measures we needed so far, like masks and social distancing. We'll really be looking for studies to tell us if we are achieving that sterilizing immunity, as well as seeing a larger portion of the population immunized before we can get back to a uh, more normal world. And I very much so look forward to our work being hampered in this area. 
Jack, so many have talked about uh, the fact that when you're testing these vaccines, people have been wearing masks, socially distancing, perhaps living differently than they would when you've had when we've developed other different vaccines. And how does that affect you studying um, transmission of the virus? And how do you determine if it's a sterilizing vaccine? So some of this will be based on there being some research, uh, some case reports eventually about whether or not transmission events took place. And it's almost a certainty at some point we'll be hearing about transmission events taking place from somebody who's immune just because no vaccine is perfect. The question will be how frequently does that occur? And that's something that for the reasons you cited between isolation and widespread virus, it was very difficult to analyze that with just a, the uh, tens of thousands who were immunized in the initial trials for this. But in the coming weeks and months, we're looking at literally millions of people getting vaccinated, which will start to give us an idea of if this is really going to put a dent in the transmission figures on the epidemiology, as well as give us an idea of uh, how effective this is at preventing spread. Do you think we're going to get back to normal life in 2021? I'm a uh, pessimist by nature, and 2020 has very, um, has rarely exceeded my expectations. I'm hoping 2021 will be better on that one. But I think that we are going to see some, uh, we're still be going to be looking at a new normal no matter what. There are some things that aren't going to change. For example, I think we'll be seeing a lot more masks um, next year or the year after during cold and flu season which is probably a very good thing. If we look at how little flu transmission there's been this year, due to, uh, that's probably due to masking and having a higher uh, social uh, acceptance of and uh, willingness to mask, especially when you have sickness uh, or illness symptoms like that is pr probably going to be with us to stay for a while. I also wonder about some of our socially distanced activities, how long it will take before we're willing to be packed in like sardines and some of the venues that we, uh, uh, just accepted as the status quo in the past and now have gotten used to having our space bubbles. But um, I wouldn't, I think that it would be somewhat ambitious to say that we'll be seeing the first half of 2021 be drastically different, especially with regards to masking. But as we approach the uh, summer and can start taking advantage of the outdoors again, I suspect we'll be seeing less need to social distance, both between having more space to do outdoor activities and more people being uh, immunized at that point. Well, there's definitely reason to hope and to look forward to some positive changes in 2021 now that this vaccine is here. Absolutely. And in particularly now that you've learned and your colleagues have learned so much about caring for patients uh, with COVID-19, also very important because we know that there will be those who are infected. Yes, we're at the at this point. I think we have a much better idea than we did back during the summer of how to treat patients with COVID nineteen, and with the vaccine, we have every reason to think that uh, cases will continue to go down in twenty twenty one. The key part of this, which the second surge really taught us, is we can't let our systems get overwhelmed. A big part of Mayo's success with this was that even when we were having our summer peaks, it was within our capabilities of providing high quality care and within what we were ready to do. So we were never tested the way that uh, some parts of the Southwest are being tested right now. And as we approach the spring and summer, that will really be the name of the game is recognizing we can cope with COVID-19 effectively between vaccines and treatment as we learn more, but we must be very careful to not uh, 
not relax too soon and overwhelm the hospitals. Otherwise we could end up right where we are right now again. That's great. Thank you for being here and sharing that wisdom with us today, Jack. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic infectious disease expert, Dr. Jack O'Coral for joining us today to discuss COVID-19 research. I hope that you learned something. I know that I have, and we wish you a wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well.